Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Uh, folks, uh, our focus today is on some cutting-edge and transformative perspectives in healthcare from an economic perspective. Uh, and I think you're going to find our guests' data-driven uh, analysis will challenge some of our conventional beliefs and our widely held opinions. So we are super fortunate to have a guest on the show, Zach Cooper. He is a rising star in the world of healthcare economics. He's a member of a new breed of young healthcare economists who are using big data and the most advanced analytics to really ferret out the truth about healthcare, how healthcare is working, where it's not working, and how to go about fixing it. Uh, by way of a more formal introduction, uh, Zach Cooper is is an associate professor of public health and of economics at Yale University, uh, where he serves also as the director of health policy at the school's Institution for Social and Policy Studies. Professor Cooper's work uses big data analysis and randomized trials to produce rigorous scholarship that can transform our understanding of health spending and healthcare delivery. Uh, Zach has published his research in leading economic and medical journals, such as the Quarterly Journal of Economics and the New England Journal of Medicine. He's also presented his research at the White House, the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Health and Human Services. A lot has been already said about uh, Dr. Cooper's work, Atul Gawande, the professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School and a staff writer for The New Yorker, and of course now the new CEO of a healthcare company formed by Amazon, J.P. Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway, has said of Dr. Cooper's research that he manages to crack open the black box of private insurance. The New York Times has written about uh, Professor Cooper's work and said it's likely to force a rethinking of some of the conventional wisdom about healthcare. Pretty impressive comment. Comments. Uh, Dr. Cooper received his undergraduate degree from the University of Chicago and his PhD from the London School of Economics, where he received the Richard Titmus Prize for Best PhD Thesis. He was an economic and social science research council postdoctorate fellow in economics at the London School Center for Economic Performance, where he remains a faculty associate. Um, and I have to tell you, I am so uh, excited to talk to him. We had a, a chance to talk a week or so ago, and uh, what was supposed to be a short 10, 15-minute conversation lasted well over an hour. In fact, we were just saying that um, if given uh, if given my druthers, I probably could spend the entire day just asking him questions and listening and learning from him. So without further ado, Zach, uh, how are you today? I am doing well. The the funny thing I didn't tell you about that conversation was I was actually on, I was on vacation. So I was in Utah and I went out to the, the deck of the, the little house that I rented and I managed to lock myself out on the porch during our conversation. So you, what you didn't know is he actually had me literally held, uh, held hostage. So if you, if you kept it going for, for nine hours, I, I would have been there. So I was, I was waiting for the, the Airbnb owner to, to come back and, and let me in off of this, uh, that's, that's was, <laughs> an exercise in self-interest. Well, you, you did a great job because I, I couldn't tell at all, uh, you know, that you were locked out of your condo. Yeah, I, I closed the door. It, yeah, I heard it locked and was like, oh boy, this is, I hope this is an interesting conversation because I could, uh, I could be here for a while. And, and now, uh, I understand you're, you're back at home and you're in, uh, in your home overlooking the Long Island Sound. Is that correct? I'm just, I just want to get the right imagery here. 
Yeah, yeah. Looking over to Long Island Sound, you're making it sound like life as an academic is really, uh, you know, the, the grind that it, it truly is. Now, I was, uh, I was in Park City. I, uh, my bad habit is racing motorcycles. Now I'm back in New Haven. We're doing this early and uh, early in the morning, and then I'll uh, I'll head to the office and get back to to doing some research. That's great. I I, um, I just I. I have so much fun talking with you and, and I think we're going to have a, a ton of fun right now. And, and so let me, before we get into the meat of it, cause, uh, and, and the more I, I thought about, the more I read up on, on some of your work. Um, I mean, I just have a list of questions that literally could, could keep us for, for the good part of the morning. But, but why don't you, uh, start off with, and you talked about the life of an academic. What, just really basically, what does, a healthcare economist do? I mean, how do you contribute to and influence healthcare and, and who, who, who are your customers? Who, who reads your work? Um, who's informed by it and, and how would they use it? So just some, just a little bit of background, because I'm not sure, you know, how many of us actually understand what, a, what a healthcare economist is or what they do. Yeah. So it's a great question. I mean, I think one of the, the neat things about academia is there's a lot of latitude to, to frankly carve your own path. And, and so I can talk about mine, but I, I think there's, there's just a lot of different models that, that you can, you can adopt. Um, you know, I was always fascinated by public policy and, and fascinated by economics. And, you know, one of the things that I think drew me to healthcare was that it wasn't, it wasn't an abstraction in the same way that, that some of the other areas of, of economics had the potential to be, right? I had the sense that, that looking at healthcare, if I could do research that was accessible, it was stuff that I could get into the hands of policymakers and hopefully use to, to make folks' lives better. Um, so I'd say, like, what is, what is my life? You know, I, I'm predominantly I'm a researcher. Um, so I'm using all these different data sets and trying to produce scholarship that, that I think has twin aims. Um, so on the one side, it's work because all politics is local that, that's sort of read by economists as rigorous scholarship, you know, scholarship that, that I think is at the, the sort of pointy end of, of what the research community is, is doing. And I think the other is at the same time to do research that hopefully improves the policymaking process. You know, I'm a, a firm believer in evidence-based policy. And so I want to produce scholarship, which can be picked up by a governor or picked up by a advisor to a president or, or whomever taken and applied. And, and it's sort of under this umbrella of an overarching belief that the way we get good policy in this country is to first sort of understand what the health system looks like and, and what's actually driving spending growth and variation and efficiency, and then rigorously testing policy and, and using that to, to get to policies that I think are the most in the, the public interest and the most likely to, to drive efficiency. You, you know, you, you use, and you've used the word academic a number of times in the last few minutes. And, and clearly that's, you know, that's what you are and that's, you know, your profession. I think that, you know, for, for people who are listening out there, I think that has a connotation of, you know, not practical and, or, or not attached as, you know, not translating into, you know, to real life or real change. I mean, I think. So some of it for me, I think, was a really conscious choice. So I, I finished my PhD, and, and most economists apply to you know two hundred schools, and you know I applied to a really really small group, and and I sort of thought to myself, you know, uh, I'm going to do one of two things: either I'm going to go into to banking and and make a decent amount of money and, and give it away, um, but what I'd rather do is go to a place, have total freedom, and then be able to just sort of use that to to affect policy, and 
So I've been really, really conscious in my own work to try to do scholarship that I think is really is policy relevant. You know, I think there's a, a tendency within the academic community to sort of do research that's a bit like solving crossword puzzles, like super intellectually interesting and, and you know, I think rigorous, um, but really for the, the sort of benefit of the person doing the research. You know, I was sort of of the view that I actually don't, you know, in a sense, I don't necessarily want to look at what I think is research that's interesting for myself. I want to do stuff that's that's applied. And, and that's just sort of been a major, you know, theme of, of what I've done. And, and I sort of think that unless I said to the, the dean of the social sciences at Yale, you know, if a paper comes out and doesn't make a sound and nobody hears it, was it actually a paper? You know, that, that I think if, if research isn't having an impact, it raises the question of why we're doing it in the first place. Hmm. And, and if my research isn't having an impact, I, I should just go into banking, make a lot of money and, and give that away because it's just not something that's, that's increasing social value. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that theme you just raised, which is, I, I love that, that, that quote, that phrase you just said about if research is not making a sound, you know, it's really, it's really appropriate. So I'm going to come back to that as we talk about some of the research you've done and some of the sounds that it's made. Um, clearly, I mean, how many times have, have, you, has your work been written up in the New York Times? Yeah. I mean, we've been really fortunate. I mean, I think every, every paper I've done since I've moved back from, from London, um, has ended up in the, in the times, you know, I, uh, you know, my, my provost at Yale gives me a little, little grief for, for publishing bigger studies and not doing that much. But I think, yeah, we've had five papers come out since I've been back and all of them have ended up in the front page or I ended up in the New York times. And I think two of them have ended up on the, the front page as the, the lead story. Um, which I think is, you know, it's funny, like we're in a, a period where to some extent, I think actually evidence is, is under threat, you know, and this idea of sort of mm-hmm. truth being relative. And it's actually been sort of super cool to, to see not just my research, but, but frankly, research of, of others getting more traction in the press, you know, where you're getting mainstream news outlets that are covering research, because in a sense, it's sort of saying, look, this is this is where North is on the compass. And, you know, my my firm sense is like, unless you really know what the world looks like or, or sort of what, you know, what private health insurance spending looks like. It's really, really hard to, to get into public policy. And I think it actually dovetails with the question that, that you raised before. Yeah. I, I think there's sort of been a couple of convergences that have, have sort of brought economists to look at healthcare. Um, I, I think the first on our side, on the sort of economic side was an understanding that, Hey, hey wait a second. Healthcare is like 20% of GDP or, or 18% you know, we've got to start looking at this and, and it can't just be the sort of exclusive terrain of, of medical professionals and, and schools of public health, you know, that, that we have as economists, a set of skills. This is a big chunk of the economy. We need to, to start looking there. And I think the second, and it's, it's sort of not to, to knock doctors a little bit, but the, the one of the stories that I, I tell folks a, a fair bit is I, I must get an email uh, twice a week from, from a resident at, at Yale New Haven hospital who says, look, I love healthcare. I love research. I'd love to work with you. And, you know, I, I think it's great. I want more physicians interested in, in being involved in research and, and doing, you know, uh, studying the healthcare system that they're, they're working in. The flip side is what I'll sort of say to folks at times, if I've, you know, been under caffeinated or I'm underslept is, you know, involving residents in my research is like not altogether that different from like involving me in surgery. 
you know, the, that it turns out really good research needs a lot right. of training. And, you know, I think doctors, I, I want my doctor trained in, I want my surgeon trained in how to do sutures. And I want my, my internist seeing lots of patients. The skills of doing, I think, research just tend to be different. And, and I think for a long time, a lot of the evidence about the healthcare system were coming, I think, from really well-intentioned medical professionals who, you know, were really good at doing medicine. And, and I think now we start to have this convergence where there are some folks who are, who are really, in a sense, methodologists who are now starting to look in healthcare. And then I think going forward, the sort of real sweet spot um, it's going to be folks who have a fair amount of, of institutional knowledge, the, the physicians working with the economists and then trying to come up with good questions and, and then using that to, to really expand our knowledge yeah. base. You know, I think you're, those are really valid points. Um, I was going to ask you the question of, of why your research um, has been getting so much attention and traction, but I, I think you answered that. Um, the most uh, pointed answer is really the fact that, you know, nearly 20% of the U.S.'s gross domestic product is in healthcare. Um, so there are trillions of reasons why uh, what you're doing is so important. Um, you know, and, and the other thing that, uh, I mean, I find so compelling um, and attractive about the work that you and your colleagues are doing is that my experience, and, and I, you know, I, 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 you know, I hate to be critical of, uh, you know, the profession and the industry, but you know, people say a lot of things about healthcare and, you know, there are conferences and they're writing, uh, papers and, and, um, you know, the, the evidence, these widely held beliefs, I mean, they're almost like, you know, uh, urban myths at this point. And, um, in fact, after speaking to you last week, I was at a, a small retreat, um, and, uh, someone uh, said something and I said, you know what? Um, that's just not true. I didn't say this, but I thought to myself, um, that's not true. And <laughs> everyone believes it to be true, but it's not. And, you know, and, and the, the problem with that is that when you have beliefs that are not based on fact and not true, and then you pursue them and you try to work on them, you're, you're either working on the wrong thing or you're working on them in the wrong way. And so I, I really think that, um, you know, after speaking to you, and that's why I'm so excited about it. I, I, I think this opens up for me a whole uh, new way of thinking. We really have to stop uh, flying by the seat of our pants. Um, it may be one of the reasons why healthcare has been mired in this vortex of, of incremental change for decades. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you and your colleagues, um, with what you're doing will really, I think you play. And there, again, the reason, you know, most of the time I talk to people uh, on this podcast who are creating a new healthcare, they're, they're building new healthcare models, et cetera. Um, so, you know, you're an academic, as you said. And so the question is, you know, why, you know, what's your role in this healthcare ecosystem? And I, and I have to say, as you said, you know, we have all these ships and they're sailing, but if you don't have a compass that can tell you true north, you, you're in trouble. And I, I think that's a really good metaphor for healthcare. And it really is a good metaphor for where healthcare economics fit in from my perspective. Yeah. And, you know, I think it kicks off sort of, you know, maybe it, take a second to sort of describe the, the research. And then I think sort of answer some of your questions about, or your, your question really about why it's had traction. You know, I, I think one of, so a lot of my research is focused on the privately insured and in a sense, focusing on why health insurance costs as much as it does. And, and I think, you know, it's worth sort of zooming back a step and, and saying the average price for health insurance for a family of four in the U.S. is about $18,550 a year. <laughs> and it turns out you can actually get a pretty decent car for, for that much money. You know, a new Toyota Corolla actually costs less. And, 
because of the insurance mandate, which I, I support, you know, the, that addresses adverse selection, we're basically requiring every family in the U.S. to buy a new Toyota Corolla every year. And, and so I think that's the, that's the sort of backdrop. And, and I think that's why folks are sort of tuned into the healthcare issue. I think the reason our work has, has gotten traction is historically, in part just because of data availability, almost everything we've known about healthcare spending, we've known from the analysis of, of Medicare data. And, you know, I think that research has been, most of this is actually work that was, was done by the folks up at, at Dartmouth, John Skinner and, and colleagues. And I think that research was tremendously informative. You know, it was stuff that showed, for example, that health spending varied by a factor of three across the U.S. and, and really wasn't related to, to who lived in what areas. The challenge is that Medicare only accounts for about 15% of the, the covered lives in the U.S., right? 60% or so have their coverage through a private insurer, and there just wasn't data on it. And so I was really, really fortunate to get access to insurance claims data from three of the five largest payers in the country. And what we were able to do is, is take a look at that data. We were able to show, for example, that health spending on the privately insured also varied by a factor of three, but, but crucially, it was just completely uncorrelated with spending on the Medicare population. And so we ended up with this sort of, in a sense, fact paper that said, wait a second, the world for the privately insured just looks different. And the reason it looks different is in part because of the way we price our healthcare services. And, and I think what it was doing was it was taking this area that, that affects people quite tangibly, right? Their, their private insurance premiums, shining a light on it and saying, look, part of the, the problem here is provider's prices. And, and then that's led us to a bunch of work digging in and in that area and thinking about what we can do to, to fundamentally make things, make things better. So I think that was, that's sort of the, the kickoff point for the, for the scholarship. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I looked at, uh, some, some of the work, uh, that y- you forwarded to me in this, in the, in the, in the commercial payment, private payment. And I guess the question I would ask is, um, and, and your, your findings are really interesting and I think so important. What could you, could you, you know, list a couple of ahas from that work in terms of the variation, its relationship to, you know, uh, did it track Medicare payment? How was it different? Why do you think it's different? Did it correlate with quality or outcomes? So I'm just kind of curious what, what that work. I mean, that's, you know, when Atul Gawande says you really opened the door or the black box on, on, on commercial payment, that's, I mean, that's, I, you know, I want to hear a little bit more about what, what was in the black box and. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's so, so preface it by saying they're just, you know, I, I'd like to say that my research is, is super innovative. I think in this case, it was innovative because we knew so little before. And, you know, in a sense, we just had no, we'd really no, no evidence on, on what the world for the privately insured looked like. And so the fact that we were able to get our hands on this data and then I think pretty rigorously describe what the world looked like for the privately insured was really what made the research innovative, not, you know, some, I think, profound intellectual contribution by, by me or, or by our team. You know, I think there were sort of four, four facts that, that really jumped out from our paper. Um, the first was that, that private spending per person, so the amount we're, we're spending on the average privately insured individual in the U.S. varies by about a factor of three to four across regions of the U.S. And that's after controlling for for demographics. And so a person in, 
you know, make it up or not make it up, but a person at Grand Junction, Colorado is, you know, we're spending about three to four times as much on that person as we are for a privately insured individual in, in Rochester, Minnesota, in Rochester, New York. And so first, there's a lot of variation. Um, second, the, the spatial distribution of spending for the privately insured is just completely unrelated to Medicare spending uh, distributions. And so, you know, I think that's actually turned out to be what got the most attention in this paper. So, you know, Atoll Gwande's work on, on or is writing about McAllen, Texas, I think captivated a lot of the policymaking community. And what he showed was that this small town in Texas, in his view, was sort of emblematic of a lot of the problems in the U.S. healthcare system. That then in this town, the, that if you were a Medicare recipient, you were more likely to end up in a hospital than you were in Grand Junction, Colorado. And if you ended up in a hospital, you're more likely to get a, a scan, you're more likely to get a surgery, you're more likely to end up in the ICU. And that the, the drivers of Medicare spending growth were, were really a result of quantity differences. You just got more care in some places. And what we actually showed and, and what was super interesting was that in his article, his original New Yorker article, he mentioned a town called Grand Junction, Colorado. And it turned out this town became you know, really of interest to policymakers. Um, President Obama actually went there shortly before the, the passage of the Affordable Care Act and said, look, if you, if you like Grand Junction, you're going to love the Affordable Care Act because we take everything from Grand Junction and we uh, apply it to the rest of the country. And, and Zach, 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 I just want to say, and, 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 and Grand Junction was, was exemplary because it's Medicare costs, because that's all that had been studied. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's Medicare costs were so low and, and President Obama and others were using it as an example of the, for what the rest of the country could be. Is that? Exactly. Right. It was, it was super low spending. And, and what we found was that they were certainly low spending on Medicare, but it turned out to have some of the highest private spending in the nation. <laughs> right. In fact, I believe it was the third highest spending of wow. the, the sort of 306 regions that, that we broke the U.S. into. And it's sort of shocking, right? Like, how did we, how do we get that so wrong? And, and it turns out McAllen actually is actually below average spending on the privately insured. And, and so, you know, to go back to the, the sort of compass analogy, you know, we just, it turned out had no idea where North was. And, you know, so we, we put that fact out there, which I think in and of itself was, was pretty eye opening, you know, in a sense, eye opening about our, collective, I think ignorance is maybe too strong, but our our sort of lack of awareness just of what the world looked like. And, you know, the third fact that we came up with, um, which, you know, I think is something that a lot of folks have, have studied was really that the factor that was driving a lot of the variation in spending on the private side was price variation. The, the, what was happening on the Medicare side were, you know, was the, the regions like McAllen, Texas were spending a lot because they did a lot of stuff. On the private side, quantity differences mattered. So certain areas certainly do more, offer more care. But what matters more than quantity variation is price variation. And that if you look in places like Grand Junction, Colorado, their hospital prices are just extraordinarily high. And so what you were seeing were that, you know, knee replacements in Grand Junction cost more than they did in, in New York or Chicago or, or Philadelphia. And so the question was really why? And what we've done in our work was looked at all of the, the changes in hospital markets that have occurred over the last 15 years. And what you've seen is just this wave of consolidation 
um, hospitals gobbling up other hospitals. And we've seen a market that in a sense has been transformed. And what we've shown in our, our paper is that when hospitals have bargaining leverage, just as you'd expect in the, the rest of the economy, hospitals can negotiate for much, much higher prices. Mm-hmm. And not only that, when hospitals merge and when they have market power, they can basically hold off against the types of payment reforms that we often talk about as transformative. So, you know, we're still seeing, for example, in our data, that about 27 or 20% of hospitals in the US are paid as a share of their charges. Um, so what you're seeing is that when these hospitals get big and when they get powerful and when they merge and have bargaining power, they can negotiate higher prices, they can get more favorable contractual terms, and they can resist the types of payment reforms that we think are are fundamentally critical to to reforming the health system. And, and you know, I think it was that sort of research that said, wait a second, North is in a slightly different position than we thought in the compass. And that this should, I think, shift the way we think about and talk about healthcare spending for the privately insured in the U.S. Well, it really, you know, we were looking at part of the picture and I mean, it's just, it's almost kind of like looking at a half a photograph or something and trying to make conclusions. And we weren't, we weren't even aware that there was another half that we should be looking at until you really, you know, published your piece. And, and now we see the, the, you know, in a, in a community, uh, you know, what the total cost of care actually are, because now you've got not just Medicare, but you also have this private insurance data. You know, what, what do you think? And this may be going beyond, you know, your domain and economics, but we, we've almost become numb to this fact that there's, there's, you know, variation in, in cost of care. It, it varies by three to four times. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it, I mean, that's just still, I mean, that's just, I, I don't even know how to explain that. I mean, how is that, is that a, a normal thing? Is that, I mean, what do you as an economist think about that? I mean, I, I, so I think about it in terms of, of waste, frankly. So when I, when I see numbers that, that show that we spend three or four times as much on certain people in some areas than we do on similar people in others, with no real variation in, in, in quality, what it tells me is sort of part, you know, if, if I'm wearing my optimistic hat, we can actually make a lot of the, the reductions in spending, the, the efficiency gains we want without sort of hitting bone if we did some cutting, right? But it just turns mm-hmm. out that there are some places that are, you know, able to get no better outcomes, but at much, much higher cost. That's where there's sort of scope for, for efficiency gains. Um, you know, I think the sort of challenge is how you get at that. So I think it, it tells me there's a lot of waste in the system. And then I think the, the sort of intellectually interesting question for me is like going forward, how we begin to, to sort of tap into to that savings. Right. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I want to, if it's okay with you, I want to, uh, just because uh, l- looking at time and, and you, you um, are either just or about to publish a paper and uh, about... Um, the ability for uh, patients to act as consumers and to make consumer-oriented, smart shopping decisions, looking at prices. And again, this just picks up on what we were just talking about. You know, you have this variation in in cost. And so, and clearly we talk a lot about, and I talk a lot about, in fact, uh, uh, about this issue of we are now have entered into or are entering to um, a consumerist uh, period of time or phase in healthcare. I, I would, you know, suggest it's almost a consumerist revolution. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, whether you agree or challenge that, uh, that uh, concept. But, um, but, you know, once again, um, 
you, you're coming out with some hard uh, data and analytics on the ability of uh, people to look at these prices and look at this variation in cost of, of care and of healthcare and, and how they can use this. And so, um, I know, uh, we're, we're recording this podcast actually before this comes out and I'm not going to post it until after, uh, after this is, uh, published and, and out in the, um, in the lay press. I, it, it might already be in the New York Times, uh, by the time this podcast is aired. So, um, but, but could you say uh, uh, what you discovered in your most recent uh, research on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the, the facts that has come out from our research is that the prices for pretty routine services vary a tremendous amount, both across and within areas. And, you know, one sort of, I think, really good example is lower limb MRIs. So I, I grew up ski racing in Vermont. Now my, my terrible hobby is, is racing motorcycles. I've had way too many <laughs> lower limb MRIs. And, and it turns out when you look at the data, you'll see that in, in cities, you know, take you know, Manhattan as an example, the price of an MRI scan varies by about a factor of 10 within like on the island of, of Manhattan. And it turns out, you know, you're a physician, you know, you know, the sort of joke I use when I talk to doctors is PhD is Latin for a, a doctor who can't help you. But, but I think you can sort of testify that, that MRIs are pretty much the same no matter where you get them, right? Mm -hmm. There's not a, a huge amount of quality nope. variation. Nope. And so if we can get folks to, to get the, the $400 MRI instead of the, the $4,000 MRI, there's real savings. And what we've seen in parallel, you know, over the last 10 years or so is a massive rise in deductibles and out-of-pocket exposure. And the sort of thinking behind them, I think, was twofold. Um, one, if, if folks have more skin in the game, if they're paying for more of their health care themselves, they'll be a little more judicious about what care they, they accept. You know, they'll be, they'll be a little smarter about whether to show up to emergency room or, or go to that, that doctor's visit. I, I think the second motivator was that they'll become better consumers. And when they're faced with a, a 10x difference in MRI prices, maybe they'll, they'll choose the one that costs 400 instead of 4,000. And I'll admit, this is one of the spaces where my priors have just changed. You know, I, I had really thought that consumerism and price shopping was going to be the future. And, you know, I think what we're showing in our new research is I think we're either not there yet or, or that's just never going to be the case. Um, we look at the, the quality of the choices people make for lower limb scans. And these are folks who basically saw an orthopedist within two months. These are, are really planned out uh, imaging services where the potential is there for them to shop. And what we see is that people make sort of ferociously silly decisions. <laughs> so on average, uh, a person's driving by six lower priced locations on the way to, to get to where they actually received a scan. So, so you're saying, wait, 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 Zach, you're saying that, that, People, uh, are, are literally driving by from their home MRI, uh, radiology centers that cost much less to go to a radiology center and get an MRI scan that costs much more with n absolutely no difference in the quality of that MRI. Is that, is that what you're, you're saying you discovered? Yeah, yeah, precisely. And, and, you know, what we're seeing is that about 75% of the people in our data have pretty substantial out of pocket costs. So, so these are people who are, in, in 25% of the cases, paying for the entirety of the MRI scan. And on their way to get that scan, they're driving by all of these places. And 
So people at baseline aren't making fantastic choices. And your study, your study said, I'm sorry, Zach, but your study said what struck me when I read, uh, what you sent me, uh, they were on average passing by six places that were lower cost and, and same quality to get to a high. I mean, that's mind boggling. Why is? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, do you, I don't want to interrupt your, your, your train of thought, but. What, what, I mean, how is that? Are they just not aware? Is it? Yeah. So, so that's exactly the, I mean, that's, that's the question of this paper. Like why in a world where folks are exposed to a lot of out of pocket costs, why are they making these sorts of silly decisions and what does it mean for the future? And it, it turns out the usual things we think affect people's choices just aren't sort of doing their thing in the healthcare space. So Obviously, as we've said, it isn't distance, not that people just go to the nearest place. Um, we find that, that quality of these MRI scans, which we look at in a couple different ways, don't vary. Um, it turns out that out-of-pocket costs don't explain it. So it's not that the, the people who are over their deductibles who pay nothing are the ones that are getting like gold-plated MRI scans. It turns out that a lot of the, the, the factor above and beyond everything else that explains where people go turns out to be their referring physician. And so we're for, focused in this case on orthopedic surgeons. And it basically turns out that, that the average orthopedic surgeon in our data ends up sending about 85% of their patients to the same location. And so if you're a patient, you go to your doctor, the doctor recommends a location. The doctor doesn't know a whole lot about the, the prices of where they send, where she sends her, her patients. And as a result, we sort of get this pattern, which is consistent with shopping where where nobody knows prices and nobody's sort of maximizing. And I think it says a lot about consumerism in the sense that that we see less than 1% of people using a price transparency tool. They just lean on the advice of their doctors. And the reason I think this work is so important is we've started moving in a space where we've said, look, we're going to expose patients to really real financial risks. And we're going to try to give them information and we're going to hope they make good choices. What our research tells me is, look, patients either don't want or not in a position to use this information. They just, they in a sense, fall back and rely on advice of their doctors. And so if you think about where we should target our policies, one option is at the consumers. I don't think that has a, a whole lot of scope. The other is starting to think about how we inform referring physicians about the prices and the quality of their referrals since they're really the ones who are in a position to affect where patients go around the system. And I think the reason this is so important is if we find now that, as we do, patients are making really bad choices for MRI scans and they're really relying on the advice of their physicians, that's for a really simple procedure. And when we ratchet up the, the complexity, when we start talking about things where the money goes up and the complexity goes up, our cabbages, our, our you know, pretty real surgeries, I think the, the patient's going to be in even less of a position to shop. And, and so I think this sort of period, you know, what, what I'm out there talking about now is really that this world of, of high deductibles, mm -hmm. high cost sharing is sort of all pain, but no gain. Yeah. And using that to sort of think about how we design our insurance policies going forward. Yeah, let me, this is great. I'm glad you introduced the high deductible health plans because they're, I, I, I don't know offhand, uh, the tip of my fingers, what percentage of, employers are currently using these so-called uh, consumer-directed or high-deductible health plans. Do you know offhand? I mean, it's a, it's a growing number. It's, yeah, we're now, I, I, I'm going to butcher the number. I'm going to guess that it's about 75% of folks in the private plan probably have a deductible of 1,000 or more. So 
it's gotten pretty, it, I think it's more often the case than not these days that people are in, in plans with pretty substantial. And, and what that means in, is, is in plain English that, that the employee and their, uh, dependents, their family, um, the first, you know, thousand or more dollars is, is essentially coming out directly out of their pocket. It's, it's not being paid for by insurance. And so that's the high deductible, uh, uh low premium, uh, plans and, and, you know, I want to ask you, so this is really, really super, uh, helpful. Um, it, it actually kind of is blowing my mind a little bit because this whole idea, and we call these high deductible health plans, uh, I think now I'm thinking of it, of it almost as a euphemism, consumer directed health plans. The idea is that, right, you're supposed to, you have skin in the game as a customer because it's coming out of your pocket. And so the idea is that you're going to make more judicious, uh, choices around, uh, healthcare spending. But what I'm, I'm, I'm inferring from your research is that in fact, we're, we're not acting employees, uh, and, and consumers of healthcare patients are not acting as consumers in the way that they act in other domains uh, of, of purchasing. But really it's, it's more like, I mean, there's no question, and, and I'll, I'll let you respond to this, but we see when, when, when an employer puts in a high deductible health plan, we see that costs of healthcare go down. People use less healthcare. Um, but I think what I'm inferring from your, uh, your research is that it's not that we're being consumer oriented or making judicious decisions. We're just avoiding healthcare completely, uh, or, or largely. And, and so just what would, yeah, can you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, so there's an amazing study. So you're exactly right. There's there's an amazing study that that Amitabh Chandra, who's an economist at Harvard, did with his colleagues, where they looked at a large company that basically switched all of their employees from from really generous first dollar coverage that covered everything to these high deductible plans. And what he found was that it reduced healthcare spending by about twelve percent. The, the interesting part though is that it didn't reduce spending in the way we would hope spending would be reduced. So it basically stopped people touching the system. They, they reduced the, the rates that they access necessary and unnecessary care in parallel. So, you know, in addition to, to not going to, to an emergency room inappropriately, they also reduced the, the rates of vaccinations. And, you know, I think what our research adds to that mix is in a sense why that's the case. So I think what you end up seeing is that these sort of demand side interventions, these sort of cost sharing arrangements like high deductibles, they stop people touching the system in the first place. But once a person touches the system, once they're engaged with the healthcare system, to some extent, they're really at the, the, the mercy or they're at the, the, the whim of the physicians who they touch. And so the, in a sense, we're using these very blunt policy tools that basically stop people engaging with the system. And once they engage with it, we're not doing a whole lot to steer folks around the system more efficiently. And I, I think the, the sort of real window into where we can have huge savings in the system turns out to be low back pain. So if you look at the, the privately insured, they basically spend their, their, their money on three areas. So, so one is childbirth. Um, the other is low back pain and the other is sort of super serious illness. So this is like our, our cancers. And with low back pain, if we ignore selection, what you really see is sort of three access points to the system. You can go through an internist, you can go through a physical therapist, and you go through a, a surgeon. And what you see is that if you're somebody with low back pain and your first touch of the system is an internist, you're much more likely to get opioids, it turns out. If your first touch is a, a surgeon, you're much more likely to get a scan and much more likely to get surgery. 
And if you touch a physical therapist, you're, you're frankly just like much more likely to get better. And the question then for the system is like how we do a better job getting that person with low back pain to touch the system at the right place at the right time. And I think historically we've hoped that if we just sort of pound the consumer with incentives and a little bit of information, we'll do a better job getting heard of that physical therapist for a low back pain. I think what this research tells me is that's just not the, the channel to do it. And there are huge savings on offer by steering people around the system more effectively. We just haven't figured out how to really do that yet. And I think that's, the at least on the policy front, one of the next frontiers for insurers in terms of benefit and and um, plan design. And, you know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned these are the three major costs, uh, private insurance, children, uh, childbirth, and, and, and low back pain and serious illness like cancer. So let me ask you a question, uh, and I'm curious about the childbirth. If, you know, you've outlined in, in low back pain or, or, or uh, you know, as you say, lower limb, which I'm assuming by that you mean hip uh, and, and knees in particular. Um, but what, what, where could there be cost savings in childbirth? How do you, if you, have you looked at that and, and how might an employer, I mean, you just outlined for me uh, uh, ideas about how to go about uh, creating lower costs of uh, effective, more effective care for back pain, but what about childbirth? Yeah. I mean, so I think it's, it's a couple features. So I think one, one, it's just getting, getting to mom early or mom to be early and, and making sure we're sort of following evidence-based guidelines throughout the birth. So I think it's sort of getting her on a glide path early on. I think the second is, you know, frankly, the, the more important space for savings is understanding that the way we need to think about costs and quality in healthcare are just different than they are in other places. So when we look at, you know, when you and I, if we went to a restaurant for dinner, we pull out a wine menu. We use a sort of heuristic to think that better or so higher price bottles of wine are better, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's sort of, it tends to be true in, in most sectors of the economy. That just isn't true in the healthcare space. So, so providers with higher prices are not necessarily providers um, who have better quality. In, in fact, often we, we see the converse. And so I think for large employers, it's identifying centers of excellence and these providers who have rem, you know, way better outcomes, which it turns out you know, there is huge variation in, in quality. Finding these providers who have much, much better outcomes and lower prices and doing a good job getting our moms to be mm-hmm. to get care from those locations. And you know, I, I think that's in part where some of this huge savings um, is on offer. And, and again, I think historically what we've tried to do is... is give mom a very, very heavy incentive in the form of out-of-pocket costs to get her to that location. I think it frankly is much more of a, a soft touch and a touch that's, that's going to be relying on doctors where it's going to be mom's internist who's going to say to her, Hey, look, like, let's talk about where you're going to, you're going to give birth. I'm a physician. I'm, I'm quite versed in quality. There are these, you know, 15 locations in your area. Here's a place that is really good quality that, that has a price that's half of this place that it's actually worse. And, you know, I, I think it's going to involve changing the nature of the doctor patient relationship, um, having physicians, particularly on the, I think the, the internal medicine side look more like, you know, I, I don't want to be condescending, yeah. but sort of look more like, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the word, but not like tour guides, more like well, navigators. Of, um, yeah. Navigators. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Uh, well, you know, this is really, this, boy, this is so, so insightful and helpful. But I, I think, you know, I think you're, you're, I was talking to a colleague, uh, yesterday and we were talking about the job of the physician. And whereas before it was, you know, the role was really around clinical competence and technical competence. And that was it. I think part of the role of the, of the, you know, new modern professional medical professional is really to be a steward, a financial steward, because it is financial health is so integral to one's life. And, you know, I, I just think this, com- this is a core competence now. And, and again, what you're, you know, what you're pointing out, I think the implications, which I, I, you know, I think are really important from your work is that if we want to affect um, consumerism, it's actually not the end consumer, the patient we need to be going after right now. Cause uh, apparently, I don't know, through human nature or just the legacy doctor-patient relationship, patients defer these decisions to doctors largely, uh, as your research is pointing out. And so the effector arm, really the the consumerist uh, lever here is really the uh, provider who's the referring provider, whether they're referring to a specialist or to a uh, procedure or a surgery or a test of uh, radiology, et cetera. So, I, I mean, that seems to me to be where we should be looking at is that is that would you agree yeah totally i mean I, I think the medical profession so so preface it by saying i think doctors are an incredibly important part of the system and, and i have tremendous respect for for physicians i think the flip side is the the medical profession hasn't your doctors as a the, the the life or the the job of a doctor hasn't evolved i think as much as the the work of other you know, the professionals in the workforce. Mm-hmm. And I, I think looking forward, there are going to be two forms of, of evolution. I think the first is historically, you know, if you, I like this analogy of thinking about medicine as a, a sort of pit orchestra. And historically, doctors have been the ones playing the violins. They're, they're out there and they're the ones generating the music. I think in the future, they're going to look a whole lot more like the conductor than the person playing the, the violin. That they're going to be the ones out there who are designing designing this sort of care pathways and then getting those care pathways mm. implemented um, by other sort of allied medical mm. professionals. Um, so I think that's the, the first big change. I think the second is is about sort of how you help somebody navigate the system. And it's not entirely clear to me who should be doing that, you know, whether it is doctors or, or whether it is insurance companies. Um, I think insurance companies have, have gotten, you know, they sort of done it to themselves, but they've, they're, they're in such poor esteem among the public that they're just sort of unlikely to be the ones who, who we trust. Um, but the, the big question for me, and I, I struggle with it. So I, I do think that, that I want my doctors thinking about cost in the, the sort of big picture. But if I'm sick, I, I still wonder myself whether, you know, what I want my doctor to be thinking about. Um, I mean, I want them to be thinking about costs, but, I actually probably want them to be thinking, I, I just ended up at an internist who, it's funny, as a, a faculty member at Yale, when I end up with a Yale physician, I almost often think that the care I get is worse because they're sort of, sort of, so sort of reluctant to, to do wrong. This person's just ordering like a shotgun of tests, you know, that I, I came in, they know that I'm a faculty member, and, and so they sort of do everything. That's more the, the sort of judicious, judiciousness that I want as opposed to like, do I want to do this surgery versus that surgery because of cost? You know, I, I struggle a lot about when I think about whether or not we want our doctors thinking about outcomes versus the sort of cost of care. Because I think that's, a, frankly, a decision that that I, as a, an informed individual, should be 
should be making. You know, do I want right. to have this very expensive surgery versus this other modality? I, I think those games are very tough questions. You know, I find this so interesting to hear this from you um, because you're, you know, this is the human conundrum. So as a researcher and an analyst, uh, an academic, your research is, is, you know, telling us that the physician really is the lever for making and, and guiding and navigating. But as a patient, you're, you're kind of getting queasy on this and you're, you're saying, well, you know, I, you know, I kind of want my doctor to, you know, not be thinking about that. And so it, I, I actually think that's the, you know, the underlying, you know, putting my patient hat on, um, I, I could see how, you know, when I go to a doctor and as much as I know about costs and prices being in population health, and this is what we think about all day long, when I go to the doctor and it's something serious, um, you know, the last thing on my mind is, is going to be, you know, I'm going to go shop for that test or, you know, I'm going to basically trust the doctor because I have to, and I want to. And, um, and so I'm going to put a lot of faith and trust and belief. And there is a certain amount of legacy deference that is just, you know, interesting. And so all of this, I, I can understand exactly how, how this happens and how, uh, what you found happens. It's just, it's almost kind of human nature. Yet, I think, I think that, you know, the research is telling us something. Um, and I think there, you know, as a system, as a society, uh, you know, maybe the physician is the right, uh, person. And, 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 you know, let me, you know, it's kind of interesting because I was literally having this conversation. I actually think that there is a new medical profession. I love your conductor metaphor, by the way. I, I, I have completely agree with that. In fact, I've been telling our doctors here that, that their work is going to be elevated and it, it needs to be. We need them to elevate it. But I think the core competence of the new medical professional, uh, the new doctor is, is, is beyond the clinical and technical. I think, uh, clinically technical. I think that it's going it, to, it requires a physician to understand pricing. And again, they don't need to know everything, but they need to be the conductor. And maybe they, they have this at their hand, either automated information or someone else doing this. I do think they have to be a quality officer. I think they have to be an informaticist. I mean, right now it is so critically important to be so facile within the informatics and electronic medical records. It just is the nature of care. And, and it's, it, these are life and death issues. And so I think the new medical professional is, is more than just a clinician. And I, I, you know, I've given your research, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, this is just part of what, and, and again, that doesn't mean that they're doing this on their own. I think they need the support and training um, and, and technical infrastructure to make that job doable. But but it, to me, it seems like that's the job of the new medical professional. Oh, for sure. And I, I think, you know, as somebody who's a, a practitioner of the dismal sciences, you know, I think it's it's understanding that incentives matter and that incentives matter for doctors, including those who, who I think are well-intentioned. So, you know, one of the facts that we see, for example, is that if you're a, a doctor and you're in a vertically integrated practice, that is you're, you're in a practice owned by a hospital, you send all your patients to a hospital. And, you know, understanding that incentives do influence the way we look at situations, I think matters profoundly. Um, you know, in terms of sort of what the, the, the competencies, competencies are for physicians going forward. I think it, it's going to be a space where there's a lot of, of specialization depending on what the type of physician is that we're talking about. I think the other is understanding that 
Yeah, so the, the best research actually that I think out there right now in terms of sort of how to reduce savings is work by David Meltzer at the University of Chicago. And what he basically does is he identifies these super high spenders and then he gives the super high spenders their own, in a sense, like concierge physician who basically follows that person around. And Zach, so, so, so Dr. Meltzer is a physician and he's also a trained economist. Yeah, exactly. He basically, he went to school for like 45 years and he's just, <laughs> he's actually 60 and he's just emerged from, from his residence. Yeah, but he, he's done all this remarkable work, you know, looking at, at, at hospitalists. And, and I think he's finally sort of right. found the, the sweet spot with all of his skills where he said, look, the, there are huge savings to get those huge savings. You need that relationship. So you need this sort of, you need this trusted relationship. And in some ways I don't as like a right. healthy, right. relatively healthy 35 year old. I probably don't. Need Wait, so, and so, and so, so Zach, I just want to make it clear. So he, his work is, um, is, uh, is around patients who have complex chronic diseases, as I understand it. And, and yep. is that, so it's, it is a, a, the small, really small percentage of the population, the one or 2%, et cetera, that, but as you said, really complex, multiple chronic issues on multiple medications. And therefore, even though a small percentage actually make up a fairly sizable chunk of the overall healthcare spend. For sure. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you talk to David and you, you read some of his work, the savings that these sort of, um, you know, we'll, we'll call them concierge docs are able to, to achieve are, are enormous, right? 30% reductions in hospitalizations, but they're not coming through, you know, breakthroughs in science. Mm -hmm. They're coming through, you know, talking to the person about why they're not taking their insulin mm -hmm. or, you know, small things around the house that, mm -hmm. that they're not doing that are making them much, much sicker. And so it's giving the physician, I think the, the incentive and the space to have those sorts of conversations. And I think that's a, it's going to sort of, I think, require changes mm -hmm. both on the conception of what a physician is and what they're, they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm but also about the incentives we create for physicians in terms of how they spend their time with patients. And then understanding that that relationship is going to differ across patients. So, you know, when I see a doctor, it's fine for them to spend three minutes with me. I, I'm not a super high spender. When it comes to those folks who are, you know, presenting with multiple comorbidities, who are spending 40, 50, $100,000 a year, we probably do want the internist to take a 45 minute visit with them. And that that makes a ton of sense. And how do we design a system in terms of incentives and educate a workforce to be able to to navigate those sorts of complex incentives and dynamics? And I think that's right. That's where the sort of rubber meets the road, and the future savings are really going to be housed. You, you know, one of one of the my thesis is about this, and it is that I I, I and I'm curious what you think about this. I, I think that in order to deal with uh, these different issues. And again, like you're saying, the large percentage of the population doesn't need this sort of intense care and follow up, et cetera. But there is that small percentage and there are different, essentially there are different segments of the population that, you know, and, and they're segmented by need. And, um, and, and so to me, it, it makes sense to sort of what, what do what, what he's done there is to really kind of cordon this off, create a separate 
um, uh, complex chronic care, you know, ambulatory unit, so to speak. And, and it's a very, very different type of practice. Um, as, as you said, the physicians are incentivized differently, but, but everything's different. The workflow is different. The way the patients are seen is different. The way they're followed up is different. It's different than the typical medical practice. And it's, it's really, and so I'm, I, I actually think that's the way to go to segment care in that way. But I'm curious just, and this may be again outside of your domain, but I'm just curious what you think about that. Oh, for sure. I mean, so it, it you know, what you said kicks off two thoughts. You know, the, the first is if I were to, to do a, a startup myself, so I have the, the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit of a tennis ball. So like, I'm not, I'm not going to start my own company, but, <laughs> but if I did, you know, the, the one I'd want to do is in a sense, incredible primary care. And what I'd want to do is I'd want to offer commercial companies the opportunity to send their patients to my practice. It'll cost a little bit more, but I'll create a space where patients want to go. And then I'll make the savings on the back end by keeping them out of the hospital. So in a sense, really high touch, really accessible, really sort of popular primary care. Mm-hmm. I think what you hit on is, is actually, I think, a, a really profound and, and bigger issue, which is we talk about healthcare as this like monolithic entity. But the reality is the U.S. healthcare system at 20% of the GDP is basically an economy the size of Germany. And you wouldn't talk about Germany as one single thing, right? You'd get into all of these, these nooks and crevices. And I think one of the challenges when we talk about healthcare is we sort of look for silver bullets and we talk about it at this incredibly high level of abstraction when the real sort of meat is when you get under the hood and you say, look, healthcare covers this vast spectrum of services ranging from, you know, uh, wellness visits all the way over to hyper acute services. And it covers a range of different types of professionals and different types of organizations. And it turns out like who knew it's complex and, and that we're going to need very, very different incentives and very different policy approaches in each of these quarters. And the sort of silver bullet things we talk about, you know, payment reform, like that just, you know, it sounds great, but, but sort of doesn't really mean anything. You know, we're, we're really going to need to sort of get under the wiring. And I think what the data can help with, and I think the path forward is zooming out and saying, look, what are the, the one or two or three conditions that are the highest spending and the most inefficient? Let's, let's focus there and then move on to our next set of problems. Let's sort of use the data to, to sort of guide us in which areas we should focus on, solve those, and then move on to the next ones. And I think what David is doing, Meltzer is doing in his work, is sort of saying, let's identify the super high spenders. We can do something about them. Then we'll, we'll sort of rationalize that and then we'll move on to our, our sort of next targeting area. And I think that's where data can be super helpful. You, you know, I really think this point you're making is, is really profound. It is a, a huge reframe, uh, and reorientation, uh, because, you know, I think you're absolutely right. We have sort of been looking and just, it's just almost kind of the way we think. We don't even question it at healthcare is this just like one large monolithic, you know, problem. And we're going to have a policy or a solution that's just going to cut across everything. And I, I, you know, when when you talk about this and I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit more because I know you're doing some work in this. And, and if it's okay, if I, if I uh, ask you this question and if you could share this with us, I know you're, 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 partnering with, uh, with some of the leading econ- healthcare economists in the country to, to, uh, focus, refocus and reorient how we think about, um, solving the problem of healthcare costs. And, but, but it seems to me that what you're saying is that instead of going about it with these broad strokes, 
Um, what we need to do is actually be in some sense much more micro about it, much more surgical. We need to go after, you know, smaller problems and solve them. And there's going to be lots of smaller problems. So instead of, you know, death by a thousand cuts, it'll be healing by a thousand cuts. And is that, so do you want to say more about that and what you're doing with your colleagues? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, you know, the, the genesis of this actually came, I, I gave a talk at a, a big insurance company and I was talking about the need to, to use data to find problems and then use randomized trials to, to test solutions. And the CEO of the company came up to me and said, you know, I want you to, to, to show me the, the 15%, you know, program that we can do, you know, some program that's going to reduce our spend by, by 15%. Right? I remember saying to him, like, short of like not paying for drugs, there, there isn't a 15% solution that, that when we think about healthcare spending in the U.S., the, the reason we spend a lot is really the series of half and 1% problems. And I think their problems, you know, this is uh, an area where I've worked on, there's things like out of network billing, um, which I think are important, but sort of don't have a lot of, of heft on their own. But when sort of viewed collectively, begin to add up to tons of money. And so what we're trying to do now is say, like, let's identify these one half and 1% problems in the U.S. that make us differentially expensive and start going one by one and, and basically trying to play whack-a-mole. So identifying 1% problems, offering solutions, and then moving on to the next ones. And I think that's, a, a frankly, a much more productive way to target healthcare spending in the U.S., like you use this big data to say, look, let's identify these 1% problems. You then test solutions to these 1% problems. And it's a sort of ever going process where you just continue to hunt out these inefficiencies and then stamp them down as opposed to trying to find these sort of silver bullets where you, you, you hope that, you know, you have this like Rube Goldberg machine where you have like, you know, you eventually get all the incentives right and the system works. That, that instead it really is sort of how you eat a whale one bite at a time approach to, to targeting healthcare spending in the U.S. You know, I, I, um, I really think that is a huge reorientation. I, and I, I would love to see this, this, uh, this approach and, and the specifics of it get out there to, I mean, this is exactly where you could translate, you know, your research, uh, and analytics, uh, to, to larger policy and quite honestly, just to the way we're, we're going to solve this issue. Um, you are working with some colleagues uh, uh, on this, and and how are you going to go about kind of getting this message out there? Would you, uh, you you've got a little bit of a club or collaboration going on in this regard? Could you say something about that? Yeah, you know, it, it's it sort of came from this belief that that frankly all politics are local. So so economists, just because of the incentives we face in our home institutions, we don't have incentives to sort of look at small, narrow, descriptive issues. We get sort of rewarded for these big high impact papers. And what I'm trying to do is basically bring all of this data, um, find all of these leading health guys. So I found 10 leading economists and just sort of went to them and said, I'll lower the costs for you to come up with a 1% issue. Like I will provide the data. I'll provide the research analysts. I'll provide the, the sort of technical support that you need. And the idea was that every one of these sort of leading economists has some 1% issue they've come across in their research. And what I need to do is lower the the barriers for them to write a three to five page paper describing it. And what we're doing now is we're bringing together all of these, these leaders in, in the health economics space to hopefully describe 10 to 15, 1% problems. And what we'll do is basically put those out there. And these aren't going to be super glamorous issues. These are, you know, things ranging from, you know, the way we pay for ambulance care to, to post acute care to, 
some of the nuts and bolts of, of electronic medical records. And that, that once you sort of have this list of 10 or 15% problems collectively, when we're spending $3 trillion a year on healthcare, this sort of 10 to 15% of spending adds up very quickly to super real money. And, and the idea going forward is to sort of first identify the problems and then hopefully marry that to, to trials, randomized trials to try to test mm-hmm. different, you know, solutions to, to addressing these 1% issues. You know, Zach, you said before that you had as much entrepreneurial spirit as a tennis ball, but that is so not true. This is really a, a, a really cool what you're putting together with your colleagues. So I, I think you actually are more of a, an entrepreneur than you give yourself credit for. Well, I, yeah, I, I look at my paycheck at the end of the month. Somehow I, I think entrepreneurs are, are you know, I, I've chosen the wrong sector. Now, I, I mean, I think you know, one of the things that I've sort of, I think there's one of the things I've just sort of tried to, to push with my students and, and the team that I work with is we have this amazing, particularly at Yale, this amazing just array of resources at our disposal. And, and frankly, we've got to just use them to do good. And I just, there's too much academic research that comes out. That's, that's really built for, for navel gazing and, and it's, it's the, their crossword puzzles. And, and I think we have the opportunity to do really good research that helps people's lives. And I think like if we sat on the sidelines and, and didn't do anything good with it, frankly, we're, I think, you know, complicit. And, and so I really, I think doing research that, that makes a difference is, is just sort of mandatory if you're, you're going to get the, the sort of luxuries that, that we've gotten in the academic community. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to come back and ask you a little bit about that, but I, since I have you on the line, I'm, I've, I've got, I mean, I've just got some questions I really, really want to ask you. So, um, and these are almost kind of like, uh, again, along the lines of debunking myths and, 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 um, really just understanding the truth. First, um, let's stick with the employer health, which we were talking quite a bit about. So if you were going to, and, and I'll, I'm going to be really transparent with you about this as I, I have been, I, I'm, I'm giving a talk on this topic of kind of a new employee health plan or, you know, what would, what would be the employer health plan of the future be? Because as you're pointing out, the current one is, is with the high deductible, um, people aren't able to make really create choices. And so it's really, it's really reducing, uh, care, both good and bad. And, and that's not in, in anyone's best interest. So in the long run, so if you were gonna, if you were going to give me some tips on, you know, here's two or three things, if, 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 if you were going to construct the, the employee health plan that you would want for yourself and your family, what, what would, what would be different? What would be the new employee health plan? Yeah, it's a, gosh, the tough one to answer. I mean, I think, so I think the first thing that I would do if I were designing one is I would, I would very, very heavily curate the, the providers that were accessible by my policyholders. So I'd start with really having a conversation with the population that I covered and say, look, there, there are good and bad providers. And one of the things we're going to do is focus less on costs and more on figuring out who's good and who's bad. And I would basically have a, a narrow network that was more like a smart network. And, and I, I just would do a really good job or try to on the front end, identifying who those providers were, where I'd want my beneficiaries getting care. So I think that would be the, the first. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing that I do is I actually would do away with a lot of the cost sharing. Um, but I would sort of do things like, you know, zero cost sharing to get into primary care, zero cost sharing to, 
if you entered the channels where I wanted you to enter the healthcare system. So it would make it very, very easy to get in to see a primary care physician, to get in to see a physical therapist, to get in, frankly, to see a, a, an actual therapist. Um, so I would make the channels where we want people to touch the system quite inexpensive. And then I think the, the third is I would take a really rigorous look at my data and I would identify where I'm spending right now and, and which, you know, which diseases in which sort of cohorts are driving the spending. And then I would focus a lot on, on the first two or three that popped up. Um, and that's going to you know, be a fairly firm specific. So if you're a manufacturing company, it's going to be low back pain. And then I would really sort of start an educational campaign to say, look, when you get low back pain, here's where you go. And I'd, I'd have it be a conversation, um, showing them what the evidence looks like, what the different options could be and, and why one option is recommended over another. So I think it'd be this sort of narrow networked, um, curated plan that had fairly low barriers to touch the system and that was sort of high on the, the communication, high on the, the sort of engagement in a fairly narrow set of conditions. That's really helpful. And, and so in terms of, as you're saying, this sort of high deductible or large out-of-pocket initial expenditure, you would, would you, how would you change that? Would you just eliminate it? Would you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I frankly would, would probably stay, uh, I'd roll it back. I mean, I, I just, I don't think, I, I don't think the, the sort of pain to gain ratio, um, is worth it on these high deductible plans. I mean, I think we need to, to make sure that, that some of our beneficiaries aren't like camping out in emergency rooms, mm-hmm. but I frankly think that's more of the tail and we can't let the tail wag the dog. Wow. And, and I think the, the way you're frankly going to get the bigger savings is actually by getting people into the system, mm-hmm. but getting them in in a very, very thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. And so what I'd do is I'd focus much more on education around access points to the system and much less about sort of smashing people with deductibles to keep them from touching the system in the first place. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Next question. Um, post-acute care, uh, continuing care, this is care in, uh, you know, after hospitals or around hospitals, uh, sub-acute care, nursing homes, uh, inpatient rehab centers, uh, home health care where, uh, uh, professionals going into the home, uh, doing care. So in that, in that so-called continuing care, do you, have you done any research or is there any research you're familiar with that would give you some, uh, some, uh, informed, uh, guidance and how we might, um, reduce, uh, unwarranted or, uh, spending or utilization? I mean, so I think this would be one of these things where I'd, I'd, I'd phone a friend. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, D- David Cutler at, at Harvard has done some really, uh, some really good research on it. So I, yep. I try to, I try to stay in my swim lane and, and not get that, uh, get that far out. I mean, I think what I'd say is this is part of a a broader discussion about what organization. So I think we're, we're sort of in this fascinating time to look at the healthcare system where we're seeing all of these reorganization of firms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're starting to see companies like Humana actually buy long-term care facilities and you're seeing companies like United buy physicians. So there's this sort of changing conception of what a firm in the healthcare space looks like. And I think, one of the, we've always sort of viewed the hospital as like the focal point of the healthcare system. So it's like the hospital that's going out and buying post-acute and buying these physician groups. And I think in a sense, we want to probably focus on organizations that don't involve hospitals who are just basically super incented to keep you out of the system. 
or, or not. We want to have people when it's the hospital, that's the, the integrated unit. They have an incentive to basically like use the hospital. And, and I think it's going to be some of these different organizations that probably own the physicians, own the rehab facilities, but don't own the hospitals that come up with more efficient care pathways. Um, but, uh, right. You know, right. And they're right. And they're out there, right? I mean, uh, you know, the one that comes to mind is the obvious one, Optum. Um, yeah. right. Uh, so that's really helpful. Next question. Um, end of life healthcare spending. So there's this accepted belief, uh, and, uh, I, I, I think it's supported by, by real numbers that, uh, uh, a disproportionate, uh, large percentage of healthcare spending is spent in the last few weeks of life. And I don't, again, don't know that exact number, but it's, it's a lot. Uh, and so, um, and so the point here is uh, people are talking about, well, how do we reduce spending at the end of life? And, uh, what, what is your understanding of that literature and that research tell us? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to say this is one where I've shifted my views pretty dramatically in a pretty narrow window of time. So, so historically what we've seen is basically the 5% of Medicare beneficiaries, unfortunately die each year. Um, but they're responsible for about 25% of the spending. And so the thinking is we're just spending way too much money on people who are super sick. And, you know, that had, you know, I think one of the things more generally that happens in healthcare is we sort of, we take as a given facts we want to believe, right? So it's, it's, I think, easy to think we spend too much at end of life. You know, we want to think that, you know, spending on, I'm going to make it up, but spending on housing makes us healthier. There are all these sort of things that we hope are true. And so we just sort of eventually think that they're true. Some amazing research came out fairly recently, which showed that that our end of life spending probably isn't that out of whack. Um, it turns out we have a really hard time predicting who's going to be sick. And what this research study did by, by Amy Finkelstein and, and colleagues, she's at, at MIT, was it tried to predict who was going to die. And it turns out, one, we're just not really good at it. Um, but even on these people who we think are are the most likely to to pass away in the coming year, we actually don't spend that much on those individuals. It turns out people get sick and we spend a lot of money on people who get sick. And it turns out some people who get sick pass away. And, and so I think this idea that there's sort of mass savings available to rationalizing end of life care, um, I think is, is, is frankly misguided. The flip side to it is I think what we do see and, and we are, are, um, I think, understanding now better from randomized trials is that when we can talk about end of life care and death and dying, there's a huge opportunity to make huge savings, but also just dramatically improve quality of life. And so there's actually a a great study looking at patients who have um, end stage metastatic lung cancer um, who get very, very aggressive palliative care. And this is work by Tom Lynch, who was at Yale at the time. And what they look at is, is this group of patients who are very, very sick, who clearly aren't going to live that much longer. What happens when you give them very, very advanced palliative care? And they gave them this advanced palliative care via a randomized trial. And what you see is the people who got palliative care were much less depressed, um, reported higher quality of life, um, and just had a, a sort of smoother last six months of, of life. And to some extent, that's what we'd expect through, through palliative care. If you give me lots of psychosocial therapy, I'm, I'm hopefully going to be happier. The kicker was that the individuals who got much more palliative care spent 25% less and then lived substantially longer. 
even though they got less advanced care. And so I think it's this idea that in many instances, in order to avoid some of the, the very complicated conversations that are, are unpleasant for everybody to have, we sort of default to giving super high intensity right. care. And that in many instances, we can avoid that care by building relationships and, and doing some of the investments that I think are less mm-hmm. tangible, but in many ways more impactful. Yeah. You know, and I, I look at that on, on the home front. You know, I have a, a father who's got Alzheimer's disease who, you know, frankly could live in a hospital if, if, you know, we didn't sort of have the discussions that we need to have with his care team. How do we incentivize having those conversations? Because I think those can be the ones that generate really enormous savings. And, and it's, it's, um, challenging, I think, as you were mentioning before for a hospital system, I mean, how do you, how do you, you you're going to have to spend the money and the resources on palliative care. It, in some sense, it's, it's counter, uh, because it's going to reduce your, it's going to reduce your revenue. It's going to reduce utilization of these high cost, high tech, highly invasive procedures and, and situations. Uh, and so you're, you're in some sense shooting yourself in the foot from a revenue perspective, uh, even though I think to your point, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And some of that's going to be changing payment models. You know, the more that, that right. we're, we're not just paying on a fee for service basis and, and we're, we're paying on a capitated basis. I mean, the best example of that is, is readmissions. There's been a, a huge crackdown in hospital readmissions and there was a hospital that actually sort of was ahead of the, the curve in doing it. And they figured out a great way to, to cut back on their readmissions. Turns out a quarter of, of Medicare patients end up back in the hospital within 30 days. And when they did that, they just found that it wasn't viable financially, right? They just, they took such a big hit on their revenue that it wasn't possible. And so I think part of it on the policy space, and I think this is where economists can be very, very helpful, is making sure the way we pay providers um, creates a space where it is profitable for them to do the right thing. And, yeah. and I think too often the, the financial incentives are, are almost uh, uh, squarely in conflict with the goals that we want to achieve. Right. Now it makes perfect sense. So let, let me ask you this. What, um, where do you, if you, if you don't mind, I, I'm going to sort of step back. Where do you see, and this is a big question, I know, given, given your, your, just, uh, your discussion about this series of 1% problems. And, uh, and so I almost feel guilty or a little stupid asking this question, but I'm going to go macro for a second and, and you can slap me if I'm, if I'm, if this is not the way to go about it, but where, where do you see healthcare going in the next five years? Do you, do you see some obvious big trends and directions? Who are the, who, who are, to your point, you know, you were just talking about who are the players, the stakeholders that really have the opportunity and have the incentive to move us forward, uh, change payment models, et cetera. Yeah. So I think, I think sort of two or three quarters uh, of the system. I mean, so I think the first is, so it's what we talked about earlier. There, there's sort of a reorganization of firms going on. And I think we see all of these different models that are emerging and different combinations of entities. And so I think we're going to see different types of firms. And I, I don't think it's clear which structure is going to prevail. I think the the firm that will prevail is going to be the one who's figured out how to I think control the doctors is a bit too harsh, but basically um, be able to to heavily influence what physicians in the system do mm-hmm. um, and whether that's via, you know, the sort of Optum United model, which is is owning physician practices um, or it's via, you know, something like the, the CVS Aetna model, which is, you know, 
retail clinics. I think it's going to be this sort of question of who owns the referral process and who can sort of influence the most, uh, influence where patients go around the system. So I think that's going to be the sort of first big trend. Um, I think the second is probably going to come, frankly, in the drug space. Um, I, I think there are going to be, so I, I think Alzheimer's is a good example. I, I think there are going to be, so the biggest breakthroughs, I think, technology-wise in the health system are, are things that take capacity out. And, and we sort of don't, we never quite know how to handle those. And I think we've created an industry that, in a sense, is warehousing seniors. And, and I think one of the big things that's going to come down the pipe is a drug that basically stops us from developing Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's going to raise all of these huge questions about what the, you know, how we live the last 10 or 20 years of our lives, um, what we do with seniors, and then crucially, I think, how we pay for a drug like that. And, and so I think that's going to be one of the, the other um, big discussions. Um, you know, and then I, I think, frankly, the, the third is going to be basically who owns the risk of individuals getting sick mm-hmm. in the system. And we've got all these different models right now, ranging from certainly the government to employers, to individuals, to insurance companies. And, and I think we haven't quite sort of figured out who, who at the end of the day is, is the one who owns the risk and then has the incentive to, mm-hmm. to really push the system forward. That's helpful. I'm, I'm going to, you've been so generous with your time and I'm, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, it, it, let me ask you a question though. you, I mean, your, your knowledge and, uh, this information and this wisdom you're sharing with us is, is so, so important. Um, and I just want to underscore, score that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, as I'm getting to know you and I'm listening to you, there is such a obvious, um, mission, uh, and sense of purpose behind what you're doing. I mean, the fact is that, you know, as you said early on in our conversation, you could have gone into a, uh, you know, uh, the banking or some other place and made multiple millions of dollars. I'm sure you still can. You, um, but, but you, you, you know, you could have gone into academics and solved, you know, challenging, intellectually uh, stimulating problems, but you've chosen a path to focus on problems in healthcare that, uh, the, research, as you said, if it, you know, you don't want your research, as you point out, making a noise that no one hears, you want it to be something that is heard. And that really has an impact on actual healthcare at at all levels uh, of our system. And particularly with the outcome of helping, helping people, helping patients, helping families. So why, why, what, what's your background? Where is this coming from within you? Why is this important to you on a personal level? I, I, uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm looking over at my couch and wondering if I should, you know, lay down. We'll have a, a really long conversation. No, I mean, I think, um, I, so I think it's, it's, I, I think I like, I like action and progress. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of like things that produce tangible change. And I think some of it is just because I'm sort of, fairly impatient with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that sort of does it. And I think the other is just sort of a, you know, the question of like how we give back and, and how we, how we sort of, you know, we're here for a limited period, how we, we sort of do something with the the skills that we each have that are unique to, to each of us that, that make a difference. And, and I think that's, 
you know, that sort of part of it. And I think the other is just sort of like assembling groups. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, when you assemble these groups of, of really cool, really smart, really fun people, it's sort of amazing to see what you, you can do. So I think it's sort of desire to solve problems paired with sort of a, a sense of, uh, of social responsibility. Just we're super fortunate. And then, you know, creating groups of people who can come together and, and make those happen and, and move them forward. And then, you know, I think just, you know, desire to a desire to just sort of have the research and to have the work I do just sort of have meaning that's, that's bigger than just sort of like a fancy publication that, that the sort of merit or the, the mark of the, the quality of your work is less sort of like applaud from, from peers, but more that it just sort of, it does something like it, it tangibly improves somebody else's life. And, and if I can do that with my research, then that's great. Then we're doing something right. You know, I also want to just applaud you for your, this approach of, you know, I think of academics or healthcare economists often working solo with their own teams, but, you know, I love your, your approach with the series of 1% problems. First of all, I love that approach. And I think that's a profound shift in how we think about healthcare utilization and cost. But, but the idea that you're getting a group of healthcare economists who are in, you know, very, very different sectors of healthcare economy, uh, economics, and you're getting them together um, to to solve a problem in a very different way. I mean, where where did that idea come from? I mean, you know, uh, again, you're you're thinking differently, and I, I. So I'm just kind of curious about that. I mean, what made you think of that? I mean, I think it was so. I've, you know, I'm I'm pre tenure right now, so I'm, I'm getting closer, and and what I've tried to do is basically focus on different sort of, um, marks along the field. And, and my goal was to get tenure and I've now sort of produced, I think the work that ultimately will be judged by, by tenure committees. And once I felt like I was in a position to have gotten that checked off the list, it became time to sort of think about impact. Hmm. And I felt really, really freed up when I got the sort of group papers done and I could sort of widen the, the aperture and, a lot of what I think about, so I try not to think about these big questions. I sort of, frankly, just try to, to go inch by inch. But in the moments where I'm slightly more reflective, it's like thinking a little bit about like absolute versus relative advantage. So like that is like what, if we're all trying to make things better, what skills do I have that I think are like unique in academia and unique in my sort of professional peer group? And I think some of it is, is just the ability to, to create infrastructure and to, to make data available and to sort of create an environment where others can do a lot of work. And if I can take, I think what I'm uniquely good at, which is building that infrastructure and then make that accessible to folks who are are frankly smarter than I am, you know, that creates the, I think the, the breeding ground for, for doing some stuff that's, that's pretty special. And so I think once I, once I got to the place where I was feeling a little more secure professionally and not needing to, (laughs) To, to sort of publish or perish, um, I could sort of think a little more about sort of big picture. How do I take what I'm good at and 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 use that to 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 sort of push forward and do bigger picture stuff? Well, I just want to you know, I just want to say something about that. I think you know, most individuals, um, professionals, or others who who get to the point in their life uh, that stage of maturity that they're ready to give back that that often happens in the fifties or sixties, and you know. F- it's just I find it remarkable that you're 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 entering this f- level of maturity of 
thinking beyond yourself and giving back um, at, at you know three decades before is normal. And I'm 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 just so impressed, and I just think it it should be called out. I mean, you're you're really a special human being in addition to your obvious uh, intellectual skills and talents and contributions. So I just, um, I just want to, I just want to say that. And, you know, I, you mentioned before your, 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 your dad, your father has Alzheimer's and I'm sorry to hear that. And, but, uh, you know, I have to think whatever he did, he and your mother did and whatever advice, uh, they imparted to you or approach to life. I mean, it's, um, it's uh, it's something I think uh, I'd like to see more of in our society. Uh, I'm curious was there was there something your parents taught you that you know was there some piece of advice or some heuristic that you sort of live by that you got from your folks? Yeah, um, um, I mean I think they were. Yeah, I think certainly from my mom it was like a sense of of like bigger picture. Like what do you what are you here to do and, and how do you, you contribute? I think dad was probably more along the lines of like how you do anything is how you do everything. You know, this sort of, hmm. you know, like it just, it's, it's sort of about what you do and, and how you move forward. And I think, you know, it's always, yeah, I talk to, you know, I talk to my students a lot about this. Like I, I think a lot of it's just putting in the work. You know, and I, my sort of favorite phrase, you know, prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. Like I, I never sort of viewed that I was as smart as the other academics, um, or, or the other sort of folks in my field. And so it was always just about sort of doing the little stuff really well. And if you could do the little stuff really, really well, eventually that added up to the, the big stuff. And if you sort of had a, a focus of something that was, you know, an area where you could do good and then you did the little steps and, and moved inch by inch, eventually it sort of added up to, to, to sort of major progress. And, and that's what I sort of tried to focus on in the work in the, the research. And it's funny, I, you mentioned the age thing. I, one of my students came up to me, this is like two months ago and he's like, can I ask you a personal question? I, yeah, sure. Yeah. What's the, what's the personal question? How old are you? I'm 35. <laughs> and said, like, well, you look great for your age. And I, like, I, I don't even know how to respond. Is that a, is that a good thing or a bad thing? So we'll, well, uh, apparently I look good for, for 35 and you can, you can take that as, as you will. That's funny. What, what was that? What was that, uh, phrase, the, uh, alliteration of the P's before about preparations? Can you say that again slowly? Yeah. Prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. Where, where did you get that from? Believe it or not, it was, um, God, I'm blanking on the guy's name. He was the, he actually was at Yale. Uh, he was the, the chief of staff for, uh, for H.W. Bush. Um, Wow, but I, I think a, a version of a, I used to ski race, and um, you know the we had I had an amazing coach who, um, and I actually don't think I internalized the lessons. Frankly, when I was sixteen, I managed to to do uh, as badly with as much talent as you could do. But it was this idea that it was sort of the little stuff that mattered, hmm. and and that you you know it wasn't the sort of talent that got you over the line. It was sort of the just the the grinding and and the inch by inch pushing and it's something I sort of try to do with my, my students here, which is sort of demystify mm -hmm. the work we do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I have this amazing PhD student and he was, uh, he was giving me his first presentation a couple of weeks ago. And what I sort of tried to, to talk to him about was, you know, now I give the same talk 10 times before I give it. And, you know, anybody who sort of tells you they don't prepare for a talk is, is sort of lying. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of trying to take this, this new crop of researchers 
and say to them, look, like there just isn't a shortcut. Right. It's, it's doing the basics. It's putting in your time. And, you know, you're already, particularly for our students, they're so far over the bar mm-hmm. on the aptitude side. Right. It's sort of teaching them the, the, the way they're going to make the big difference is just sort of putting in the reps and, mm-hmm. and putting in the time and, and using that to sort of sharpen their blade and, and then go out and do the work that they're you know, able to do. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, I find the best way to be improvisational is to, uh, is to really be prepared. The more prepared you are, yeah. right, the more free you are to actually go off script. Um, right, precisely. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, I think one of the things that, that some of our students or, or some of the, I certainly wasn't able to appreciate early on was the folks who, you know, it's like a duck on water, you know, underneath they're sort of paddling <laughs> furiously, you know, it's easy to see the folks who are doing well and sort of think that they're sort of oddly calm and you're like, no, they're, they're actually just putting in the reps. They've just figured out how not to let you see them, uh, when they're, they're doing the prep. And, and so I think the more we're sort of comfortable lowering the, the curtain and letting folks see the work that, that we're putting in, frankly, the, the better that the, the next group of, of researchers or doctors or whomever is able to, to sort of come forward and, and figure out what it takes to, to do well. That's a great metaphor. Um, so I'm going to, again, you've been so, so generous. I'm, I'm hoping we have a chance to speak again. This is just so enlightening in so many ways, learning about what you're doing, your contributions to healthcare, as well as, you know, your personal perspectives on, on life and work. And so I, I, um, this has been super, super fun and, and just super special. So I just really want to thank you for that. Good. And it was a, it was a blast for me too. Now it's a really fun, uh, Really fun conversation, both about the, you know, the, the big picture work, uh, work and healthcare stuff, but, but more about the, the motivation. I think it's, uh, those are the tougher questions, but, but frankly, the more fun conversations to have. Well, yeah, for sure. And, and, um, again, I, I hope we, uh, you know, uh, have a chance to speak some more. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, reading what's been written about, uh, your work in the New York Times and other places and, uh, looking forward to some of your contributions. I'm pretty, pretty excited actually about the, this series of, uh, 1% solutions, uh, or as you say, a series of 1% problems or 1% solutions. Cause I, I really think that's going to be a game changer in terms of, uh, how we think about healthcare costs and go about solving, uh, this conundrum. So, uh, so really excited about that. When I'll be, uh, I'll be shameless on that front. We're, uh, you know, it turns out a lot of this stuff is, uh, is resource dependent. So we're, uh, I'm out on the street trying to, to hold people by their ankles and, and shake pennies out of their pockets. So if any of the, the listeners out there are, are, are also thinking that's an interesting project, uh, you know, reach out because we're, we're sort of at the stage of, of trying to fund it and, oh. and trying to. Well, what, where, where should people, uh, write to you or how do they get in touch with you? I, uh, they can, they can email me. Um, so Zach, Z-A-C-K dot Cooper at Yale.edu or, uh, it's funny. I was, I was on the, I was on a NPR broadcast with the, uh, the head of the insurance exchange guy named Kevin Cunahan. And, uh, it was the day the exchanges were launching and he, he goes on air and he gives out his cell phone. He's like, if anybody has any problems, here's my cell phone. And I remember looking at him, uh, a gasp being like, you really want to do this? And, uh, and he did. And I, I, you know, I actually think that's uh, talk about a guy you can learn from, you know, I think, um, you know, we often put these walls up and, and I think frankly, it's, it's ill-advised. So if anybody's into this space, you know, feel free to, to reach out, email me and you know, my, my phone's up on the website and I'm, I'm happy to, uh, 
chat research and and talk about any of this stuff going forward. Oh, that's a great offer. Well, and and let me just say, if there's anything I could do to help you, um, I'm I'm expecting and hoping that we're going to be in conversation. But uh, just want to say, let let me know what I could do to support you. I uh, I just uh, I just think you're you're just such a, a great asset and uh, in 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 our healthcare world. And you know, I'm hoping more people learn about you and your work and the work you're putting together for your colleagues. So, so anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to sign off here and, um, and, uh, I just want to say, as I often, as I do every single time I do this podcast, um, I just want to thank our listeners. And, uh, for those of you who are listening, who are either providers of care or you're supporting providers of care, I just want to thank you because you're doing the hard work each and every day, this critically important work of taking care of people from a healthcare perspective. So, so thank you. And, um, until next time, be well. And thanks again, Zach. Thanks for having me.